Good morning. Uh, would you open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 1? We're going to begin that new study for us today, and I'm very excited about being able to get into this. Uh, for those of you who are fans of Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, or any other kind of serial storytelling, you know full well how important it is to get the various installments into proper sequence in order to get a full picture. Uh, movie makers and authors, they try to make each segment or film stand on its own, but even then you need what's called the backstory. What are the things which led you up to the events that you're about to witness? And it's true even in a children's book. Let me give you a for instance. Jack falling down and breaking his crown and Jill then tumbling after needs the backstory of the two of them going up the hill to fetch a pail of water first. We make sense of things sequentially. And it's no different when it comes to reading the Bible. And unfortunately, this is a woefully overlooked principle. How often we can just pluck a verse or a passage out of the Bible and try to make sense of it without first figuring out the backstory to it. And for anyone serious about knowing the overall storyline of the Bible, you must have the foundation of Genesis 1 through 3 to have any real idea of what's going on in the rest of it. Uh, that's true for the Gospels or Romans or in the case of this new series that we begin today in 2 Corinthians. So bear with me. I want to take just a moment to try and get us up to speed on some of the backstory that occasioned this letter so that we can get the most out of it. Now here's a question. Can we read it and study it with profit even without the backstory? By God's grace, yes. The marvelous way the Bible is written, yes. But when we get some of this foundation down first, it answers a lot of questions as to why Paul says what he says and the way he says it. And it helps us understand the whole message much much more richly and accurately. Now, back when we were in 1 Corinthians, we told you a lot about this city of Corinth. And uh, I'm not going to go back and repeat all of that here, but one commentator does a great job of summarizing that uh, like this. So I want to try and get that picture. Um, first, Corinth was geographically in Greece, but culturally in Rome. So it had a very Roman mindset within that, that uh, context. Second, quote, In the time of Paul, one-third of the population consisted of slaves, and Corinth was a, a main depot for the slave trade in the Aegean. Third, he notes that when the ancient philosopher Diogenes was living there, Diogenes wrote this, That was the time, too, when one could hear crowds of wretched sophists. Sophists were uh, teachers that had gotten a little pool of people around them. They had a particular philosophical point of view, but they were teachers. These wretched, wretched sophists would gather around Poseidon's temple, shouting and reviling one another and their disciples, as they were called, fighting with one another. Many writers were reading aloud their stupid works, many poets reciting their poems while others applauded them, and many jugglers showing their tricks, many fortune tellers interpreting fortunes, lawyers innumerable perverting judgment, 
and peddlers, not a few, peddling whatever they happen to have, close quote. That's quite a, quite an indictment. Fourth, we need to note that the citizens, as this author wrote, were obsessed with their status and their ascent up the ladder of honor. Savage asks, what kind of people created such a city? And his answer, people impressed with material splendor and intent on raising their standing in the world. In this society, one can only rise via a combination of patronage, marriage, wealth, and patient cultivation of connections. Fifth, it was a wealthy, cosmopolitan place. And as for the church Paul established there, the commentator continues, quote, The result was a thriving and brilliant congregation composed of persons from mixed backgrounds and social standings, an explosive mix that led to dissension and rivalry that caused Paul much anguish and concern. Well, that said, let me sketch out some key facts directly impacting how we read this letter. Some of the immediate backstory, things that are really germane to the, to the time when Paul wrote this specifically. First, and this give you a, a bit of a sequence of events here, Paul's first visit to Corinth came during his second missionary trip. You can read that in Acts 18. After leaving Athens and his discourse on Mars Hill, he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth and he starts to evangelize. He was working at his trade, and during that time he goes to the Jews first and then the Gentiles, and eventually spends a whole 18 months there. Now, second, on his third journey, he ends up back in Ephesus, a city which he had only visited briefly on his previous trip, and stays there over two years. And while he's in Ephesus is when he writes a letter to Corinth. Well, we don't have that letter. But Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians 5.9. And that letter contained an admonition not to associate with people who claim to be Christians, but are living immorally. Among other things, some there apparently misunderstood and thought he was advocating total separation from society. And then during this same time, He's visited by three men, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, probably bringing a letter from the church at Corinth to Paul and asking a bunch of questions about marriage, spiritual gifts, eating food offered to idols, etc. And those are the things he answers in part of 1 Corinthians. We covered that. But he's also visited by a group called Chloe's People telling him about the problems in the church, the misunderstanding of his letter, and the infighting and the divisions that had sprung up. So as I said, in response to all that, he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. Now, some received his rebukes in that letter, and others, well, they took offense. And more division ensued, and it was around him this time. So, third step, at this point, Paul cancels a visit that he intended to make there and sends Timothy as his emissary instead. And when Timothy comes back with news of the church being in disarray, Paul then makes a brief, what's often called painful visit to them, that he references in 2 Corinthians 12. We'll get there a few weeks down the road. 
Apparently, that visit did not go well. He, he seems to have faced some pretty vocal opposition by some that were there, and, and perhaps that opposition was spearheaded by one guy as a spokesman, challenging Paul's authority and even his ethics and his character. We get hints of that in chapter 2 and chapter 7. Well, going back to Ephesus, Paul writes them another letter, which he references several times in Second Corinthians. It's most often called his sorrowful or severe letter. And that was probably delivered to them by Titus. We don't have that letter. Uh, we only have his references to it. But in it, he called on the church to deal with, among other things, this opposer that had sprung up. Meanwhile, he appears to have been in pretty serious danger for his life, which he'll come back and mention in 2 Corinthians. And then for whatever reason, after Titus had delivered that letter to the Corinthians, he got held up and didn't get back to Paul in a timely fashion with how the church responded. And so Paul was, was beside himself. So much so, he records that he left an open opportunity for ministry and went to find Titus himself. And when they finally get together, Titus tells him, things really went well this time. And so this sparks Paul to write 2 Corinthians and the letter we're about to study. And he does this to try and accomplish a number of things. The first he wants to do is to heal his relationship with the church more fully. That opposition that had arisen had really caused, caused some serious fractures. The second thing he wants to do is address the fact that some new issues had arisen in the form of new challengers to his apostolic authority uh, by a group called the Super Apostles. He'll use that very language later in the book. Third, he wanted to correct the rampant misconceptions about what constitutes God-sanctioned ministry and life in a culture where what was good was measured by what they saw as successful, not unlike today. Fourth, he wanted to clear up misunderstandings about himself personally. And then fifth, he wanted to get them ready for his third and final visit. Well, that's what then brings us to our text this morning and Paul's opening in 2 Corinthians 1 through 11. So, uh, get your Bible out if you have, and we're going to read that, that portion of the letter together right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, 
For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. For he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us yet again. You must help us, you also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Just 11 verses, but man, are they rich. And so the reason why Paul starts where he does in this letter harkens back to those things we just covered in developing the backstory. A key issue was this. Some people had gotten it into their heads that if someone was really blessed by God, and if they were walking well with him, they would not be suffering trials, tribulations, and the other types of opposition that Paul had been facing. For them, the proof that he was illegitimate was that he was not outwardly successful and living what some might call the blessed life. And we have that very same mindset today in the church, do we not? We have those who preach and teach what's commonly called the prosperity gospel, which basically says that Christ died to make sure you could be healthy, wealthy, successful, and happy in everything you do. And so anyone who doesn't find that reality in their lives either isn't walking by faith, or there must be some underlying sin at the root of their problems. The implication behind all of that is good Christians should be blessed, and blessed is defined as enjoying earthly prosperity. And if not, something's wrong. And because this thinking was being used to discredit Paul and undermine his authority, and ultimately cast a shadow of spiritual failure on every Christian who suffers, he needs to tackle it right out of the gate. And so his first point is this, in verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So, note first, God comforts us in our afflictions. Well, that tells you something. It's obvious, then, we have afflictions. And we're not held at arm's length by God when we have them. But he comforts us in them. Secondly, we experience these afflictions of all sorts, if for nothing else than for the express purpose of equipping us to minister to others in their afflictions. Now, there are, there are other reasons, but that's going to be his main thrust in this passage. The assumption there being that we all will suffer afflictions. So for Paul, there's no theology of Christians escaping suffering, but instead a theology of how Christ redeems our suffering and uses it for his glory and our good. I, I, it does make me wonder if why we are often so poor at being able to minister to others 
is that we have failed to consciously seek the comfort which comes from God alone in our distresses. In other words, because we we look to others or other things rather than to Him directly in our trials, we then can't help others to look directly to, to Him for the comfort that they need. For while we do comfort one another to a certain extent, most do not need us as directly as we might think. What they really need, above all, is for us to point them back to Jesus, to receive the comfort we did when he comforted us, to put our arm around our brother or sister in their distress, whatever it is, and tell them how God met us in our time of trial and help them look to him themselves. So building on that, look at what he says then in verse 5. Let me get down there. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now just what does he mean by linking our sufferings of all kinds that we endure now with Christ's sufferings? And first, we we understand that suffering can't be a symbol that our faith is not working, or that would mean that Jesus' faith was not working too. Something's really wrong with that picture, isn't it? He didn't enjoy earthly success, so what was wrong with him? And the answer, obviously, is nothing. So what Paul's getting at is that we share in the sufferings of Christ the way he shared in ours. He stepped into our fallen world with all of its sorrows brought on by the fall so that he might minister to us out of true compassion. More than sympathy, more than empathy, but as one who suffered with us as we do. And thus we come to share in those sufferings for one another so that we might minister to one another in our sufferings having suffered the very same things. Here's an, an amazing truth. Nothing so equips us to serve others as much as having suffered ourselves. We need not suffer the identical thing, but we do need to have suffered and to have known the doubts, the fears, the concerns, and even the torments that are common to all suffering. The sense of loss, whether it be of an object, an opportunity, a person, a spouse, a friend, a child, a parent, the loss of a faculty or a job, the sense of abandonment by God that suffering can bring, a sense of helplessness, a sense of remorse, especially if the suffering is self-inflicted, something we've brought on ourselves, the sense of loneliness, the sense of hopelessness, or the seeming senselessness of some events and tragedies, the fears for the future, the disorientation of a life completely needing to be restructured, the loss of the sense of self which is so tied up with our normal circumstances, anger and desire for revenge and unjustness, all these and more are common elements of nearly all suffering, regardless of the difference in degree. And in this, there's ample opportunity to salve the wounds of one another. 
having having been born again and brought into Christ by the Holy Spirit, into his family. We now live as aliens in this world, just as he did. Knowing, having come to know true holiness now, we suffer remaining in this fallen, sin-sick world, experiencing it from a completely new perspective than we used to. And this is, beloved, this is a high honor he bestows on us, to be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and, and into his kingdom. It's, it's what's remarked in Colossians 1.13. And this is what, what's behind the groanings of Romans 8.22-26, through 26, and, and later in this letter of 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verses 2-4. through 4. We do not share in his sufferings, and I want to be careful here. We don't share in his sufferings as though we pay for sin in any respect. That is Jesus' exclusive work. We don't enter into that. Ours is to be allowed to enter into the reality of his sufferings in leaving heaven and becoming incarnate. It's it's really a most intimate opening up of his heart to us. It is as though he says, Come inside me and and feel what I felt, if only in the tiniest degree. It's a priceless treasure to know this world as it really is in his eyes, and to know something of how being here impacted him. This is intimacy of the deepest kind, and we need to bear this in mind when we grow weary of being here too, growing weary of sin and its discord with our God. That's a gift. Don't refuse it or throw it away. Be glad that you can want to be free of sin and its effects. And not because sin and its effects are just uncomfortable in the natural, but because they're antithetical to your new nature in Christ Jesus. This is what he suffered so as to pity us and act toward us in mercy. And so it is, it ought to produce the very same result in us. It ought to make us sympathize and empathize with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to minister to them as he's ministered to us. Indeed, to minister to them out of how he has ministered to us. So Paul can go on to say uh, in verses 5 through 7, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. That's amazing. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. When we suffer, we get comforted by him. And we then use that comfort to minister to you, both through commiseration, I can, I can cry with you, and sharing how he met us. And you do the same in patient endurance. And we know you'll come out better for it, says Paul in the end. Why? Because that's where Christ meets us. And then Paul does what would have set his detractor's hair on fire. 
rather than hiding his sufferings to project some false image of being the blessed man, he goes on to tell them just how bad things have been for him lately. He has nothing to hide, to to try and save face before anyone. He just pours it out. He even admits he was in a place where he figured, "This, this is it, I'm done. And then he tells them why such experiences are so valuable. He does it in verses 8 through 9. If you've got your Bible, just read that with me. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Isn't that awesome? So that we would learn not to rely on ourselves, but only on the God who raises the dead. For Paul, and it should be true for us, the worst that can happen is that we die. And that can only eventually end in resurrection. So he closes this portion in verses 10 through 11. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us yet again. And you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. It's astounding. I've, we've received that deliverance And he's going to deliver us even from death itself yet. Uh, There he's mentioning that Christ had delivered them from present physical threats. But in the end, he'll deliver us from death. And and all that is calculated, all of this is calculated to birth thanksgiving in our hearts and in the hearts of as many as hear of it. It's glorious. Now, I titled this sermon from why me? To why me? Because there's a natural response to suffering, trials, and tribulations of all kind that generally finds us asking that ever-present, why me? Job asks it a number of times and in different ways, like he does in, in Job 7.12, where he, he says, Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? I mean, what am I that you, that you would let this happen to me? Am I some evil beast, some monster? And of course, the underlying implication of that question always is this. I don't deserve this. So why me? Why do I get this pain, this perpetual trial, this anguish? And let's be honest, we've all asked that at one time or another, haven't we? I know I have. And Paul is getting us to ask, why me, in a very different way. The way David does when, after God tells him he can't build a temple for him because he wants Solomon to do it, and God promises to build David a house instead, so David prays in 2 Samuel 7, quote, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is, what is my house that you've brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. 
And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Close quote. David's why me in that passage isn't a cry that he's suffering unjustly, but that he can't believe why he should be so blessed by God. And this, I'm convinced, in this passage is where Paul wants us to move to in freeing us from the success and prosperity model he had to dismantle for the Corinthians. Yes, we suffer. We suffer along with all mankind in this fallen world which sits under the judgment of God. But but why me? Here's, here's the questions. Why should I have the benefit of knowing your personal comfort in my sorrows and woes? Lord, why should I have the privilege of facing them in such a way that I get to share something of the sufferings of Christ? Why should I live as a child of the God of all mercies when so many suffer without Him and and without hope? Why should I be allowed to be God's instrument to comfort others and expose them to the grace I've so abundantly received? Why, Why should I know that even if what I face right now completely undoes me, that I have the sure and everlasting hope of the resurrection and eternal life. Why should I come to know the high and holy experience of leaning and learning, not, not to rely upon myself, but so that I might know the Spirit of Christ so intimately, enabling, comforting, and leading in the midst of all my trials? Why should I be part of the redeemed, who by their prayers minister to the sorrows of others and cause God to receive multiplied thanksgivings, the ones he deserves. Why should I be allowed to face all of this in hope and assurance when the masses around me know little or no relief at all, and certainly not the kind of blessing I receive? Why me? Why me, indeed? Well, Paul's going to go on to revisit this issue more in this letter, and and especially why not living your best life now is located in outward blessing, but in an entirely different place. And why earthly and cultural models of success are, are not the means to weigh gospel living and gospel ministry at all. Just before we close, let me take just a moment to establish from this text this text just exactly what kind of comfort Paul has been talking about for god does not take on the role of spiritual or cosmic medicine if we have a headache we need to take an aspirin looking to him in his comfort doesn't circumvent our need for doctors or medicines or other means of relief no The comfort which belongs to the believer, as in Christ, comes in these four primary ways. First, his presence. We see it in the very word that's used for comfort throughout this passage. The very same word in the original that's used for the Holy Spirit when Jesus calls him the Comforter. It is his, if I can coin a word, forgive me for the clumsiness of this, the coming alongsideness of Christ. He draws near to us in our sorrows. He makes his presence more readily known and available if we will seek him in those times. 
He is always with us in our trials. He never leaves us alone. And this is absolutely fundamental to basic Christianity. So much so that Jesus includes notice of it in his parting words to the disciples in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. You remember, he, he charged them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Spirit and, and the Son, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded them, all commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're comforted first and foremost by the reality that he never, ever abandons us, but goes through us, with us, through every trial. The second thing that his comfort is, is it points us to his provision. Comfort from his word, its wisdom, the the record of his mercy on his people that's contained there, and the reminders of the truth that are throughout the Bible. His provision in other believers who come alongside to point us back to Christ, as Paul mentioned in verse 4. And as Paul was so comforted when he finally met up with Titus and heard how things had begun to turn around well in Corinth. The comfort of his indwelling spirit constantly and gently wooing us to look to Christ in all. His provision of doctors, medicines, scientific advances. The testimonies of other saints and how God met them. Read church history, beloved. His angelic host to surround us. He appoints provisions that we'll never even begin to fathom until eternity reveals them. And then we'll we'll gasp, I never knew how much you had provided for me in that time. His provision of how we can become part of the provision for others as we comfort them with the comfort we've received from him. Third, the comfort we get in his promises. So Paul reiterates in verses 8 through 10 that that when he had completely despaired of physically surviving a recent trial, he could trust in the promise of the resurrection. That his trial was not the whole story, nor the end of the story. And beloved, your trial, my trial, is not the end of the story, nor is it the whole story. But heaven and eternity still awaited him and they still await us. We are comforted by rehearsing and putting all our weight on his unbreakable and sure promises. And fourthly, prayer. The comfort of prayer. We have access to the throne of grace at all times, in all places, and under all conditions. We can pray for ourselves and others in petitions. And we can offer up prayers of praise and thanksgiving for his answers. And and above all, the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to him through the blood of Jesus. We can pray for endurance and, and offer prayers to have our hearts and minds settled on his character and love toward us. Prayers of utter weakness, sometimes unutterable except through our tears, but prayers heard and attended to. As David notes in Psalm 56, 8, when he writes, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Prayer that obtains for us what we would not have any other way. 
Here is our solid four-square comfort, his presence, his provision, his promises, and prayer. And all ours only because of Christ. What a Savior he is. Let me close with a poem from a book I'm recommending to all of you. Jim sent it out in uh, his uh, newsletter as of Friday. And I'm asking you to buy it as a wonderful supplement to this sermon series and 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 it'll be useful for our deeper discussions on Wednesday nights as well. The book comes from the pen of Alan Redpath, a man I've loved for many years, who is home with his reward now. Um, and his writings on Second Corinthians, and it's titled "Blessings Out of Buffetings." You can get it in Amazon; it's not expensive. The Kindle, I think, is only seven bucks. It's very readable, and it's tender, and it's devotional, and it's a real treat for your soul. And I can only tell you that I've wept through that book many a time. It has ministered to me so powerfully. Well, at the close to the introduction of that book, he includes this poem from Avis B. Christensen. And let me close with this. O tried and tested Christian, beset on every hand, by storms of strife remember, thy father holds command. E'en though the tempest rages, thy chastened heart may sing, for he doth purpose blessing through all thy buffeting. Be strong and of good courage, though foes thy soul assail. No weapon formed against thee hath power to prevail. For thou shalt share the triumph of Christ, thy conquering King, who purposes a blessing through all thy buffeting. Rejoice to be found worthy of suffering for his name, who on the cross of Calvary bore all thy weight of shame. When he shall come in glory, his ransomed home, his ransomed home to bring, thou'lt know in full the blessing attained through buffeting. Wow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, These are things that are outside the norm for our society, for our culture, for human nature. (laughs) You bring us to truth that is so profound and so contrary to all we know. You lay it out for us. You give it to us here in your word in these extraordinary sentences. And we stand in awe. Now grant us grace by your Spirit to appropriate this, to consciously look to you for our comfort in our trials and tribulations. By your Spirit to redeem them because Christ has purchased that for us. To trust you for ourselves. To come alongside our brothers and sisters and point them once again to the great Redeemer of our souls who died for us. And will greet us on that day when we'll rise from the dead, but who even now meets us in the sorrows and trials of our path. Father, we ask for that blessing in Jesus' precious name.